Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today's episode is with someone very, very special to me who actually leaves pixie dust everywhere he goes. I'm serious, he radiates positivity. Today's guest is Henry Winkler. Whether you know him as the Fonz from Happy Days, Barry Zuckerhorn from Arrested Development, Gene Cousineau from Barry, or one of his other iconic roles, you have witnessed this man make magic on screen. I stopped by his house to talk about all of those, his very first role, his latest children's book, Alien Superstar, and so much more. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Do you know that? When did we meet? How um, old were you? I couldn't tell you. I mean, I feel like I've known you since I have that memories. That is true. So I met, I might have met you when you were a little girl. Yeah. Because your dad, a great photographer, yes. um, shot me. That is the, the ball you hear <laughs> is um, my dog, my Labradoodle, 23 pounds of Sadie wants to play. She plays ball 24 hours a day. And poor Sadie, we're sitting here having a conversation and she just wants us to play with yeah, her. Yeah, well, you know, that everybody doesn't get everything they want. Say la vie. But yes, you're right. You worked with my dad. Yeah. So cool. And you were very close with my godfather also, Richard Grant. Richard Grant was oh, my publicist. The greatest. The greatest. The greatest now, little man. did I know, because he was so cordial and congenial and, 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 and in, incredibly warm and mm. protective uh, when he was with me. Mm. Afterwards, I found out that he would eat press people for lunch. <laughs> he was so tough. Yeah, he was tough. He was so tough for the people that he loved. Yes, right. He just... He took very good care of us. Yeah. yeah. Deeply loyal, fiercely loyal. He was a special, special man. Yeah. He'd get a kick out of this if he were still oh my around God. today. Could, I, I don't out. think... Yeah, probably maybe he's looking down, but yeah. it would be like shocking that we are here now yeah. on your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Sure. So... When did this come to you? Oh, to do the podcast. Yeah. You know, I think looking back, I realize that this has always been such a a passion zone for me. Really? I the interviewing? The the question asking, the curiosity, the the sort of bent toward journalism. I went to USC to get a BFA in the theater school. And about a year in, I just said, I don't think this is really for me. I want to act, but I don't I don't know that I get this kind of program. I, I missed studying real stories. And I transferred into Annenberg. So I was in the journalism school studying journalism and political wow. science. And that's really when I started to work like crazy. But so that is an amazing journey. So you start in the mm -hmm. drama school. Yeah. You go to the journalism school, mm -hmm. you star on a television show, mm -hmm. and you come back to journalism. Yeah. Wow. And I realize for me, and maybe, well, let me back up. I love what we do. 
Right. I love working. I love storytelling. Yeah, me too. I love creating content. I do really right. love it. For me, the two big shows that I starred on, right. both were on location. I was always away. Yes. And so work- That was strenuous. Yeah, and work kind of became this all-consuming space. Right. And it always- Well, especially when you're doing an hour drama. Yeah. That might be one of the, aside from parenting, <laughs> may be one of the most difficult jobs on the face of the earth. Yeah. Because when you are really one of the featured players in an hour, mm. you are there how many hours a day? 16. 16 hours a day. Mm. In Chicago- Mm -hmm. Let's just take sure. um, Chicago PD. In Chicago, mm -hmm. and all I see when I watch you is, oh my God, that is so cold. <laughs> what are they wearing in order to stand out there yeah. for 16 hours in one of the coldest, windiest cities on the planet? Yeah, it was wild. I mean, yeah, it, it takes a toll on your body, but I, I think for me, the hours and the being away. The being away, you keep coming back to that. Yeah, it always made me feel really removed from my life. So mm -hmm. my work became my life, mm -hmm. but I was missing life. Yes, right. And there's something okay, so about what this. Were, what were the things that you would miss? What is the life mm -hmm. that you were missing? Uh, is it friends? Yeah. Is it what? What is the... It's... What is a, a detail of that life that you did not have in Chicago? It's it's your long community. Right. You know, your long-standing people. Right. It's it's missing family. Your peeps. It's it's not being able to have dinner with your parent for me, not being able to have dinner with my parents, not being able to meet up with friends on a Tuesday night. Mm -hmm. You know, you are removed from your life. Right. So in a way, you're always trying to play catch up. Right. And then, you know, you build a life where you are. Right. And if you're lucky, you work with really good people. Right. But it's this weird kind of temporary permanence right, right, in a right. way. Well, I- Because you don't know how long you're going to be there. that has always made me nuts. Yeah. That I would make a movie with somebody for six months. Yeah. And then I would call them for dinner. I thought we were friends. Mm. I thought we had a relationship. Yeah. And that I would call the person, uh, and I'm still waiting for that person to call me back. And you. that was in, in 84. Oh. It, I, it took me the longest time to get over mm. that it was not really an ensemble. It was, you're there, you do it, you're, and then you move on. Well, and it's a little bit of summer camp, you know? Yeah. And, and I guess what's curious for me... Or, or, or what's been strange to me is the reality that, look, I think about it like a pie chart. You've only got so many slices of the pie, right? You mean in your life? Yeah, just, mm -hmm. just the amount of space you have available to right. you as a human. Right. And if you want to maintain the pie slices that are your family and your friends you've either grown up with or your best friends at home, right? then there's less pie for the people you're working with. Do any of but those people come to visit you on location? I mean, sure, but it's not the same. But it's not the same. Mm. You know, you, you don't have a regular routine with people. Right, and for right, me, right. that was always really taxing. Right. And, and so interestingly enough, coming to do this, this all came about because I realized that for years I've had these deep, delicious, fun, 
inquisitive conversations around my dinner table. Right. And then I've done that in political spaces and right. in activist spaces. Right. And, and I've been privy to such amazing information. And that's what makes me feel like my life is full, not just my work. Got it. But my life, mm -hmm. my, my mind, my right. heart. And so getting to do this, getting to sit with people and dive in with them and, and be curious with them and share stories with an audience and, and perhaps lessons with people, things I take as lessons anyway, that feels really personally fulfilling. So when you talk about lessons, mm. what, do you, what is a lesson that you now have taken with you that informs your entire life? Mm. Do, you have, do you have something on your mind yeah, for me, for me, it's about showing up. Showing up in every, in every aspect. The, and the way that we show up, especially for our community. You know, people who say, oh, I don't want to be political. I think that's really a sign of, of privilege. And if I'm being quite frank, of a bit of ignorance. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people don't realize that everything we do is political. Right. And I actually take the opportunity to live in a place where we get to voice our opinions, where we get to vote as such a privilege. Right, right, right. And, and so I think about the way that we show up, not just for each other in relationship, but for our community at large, yeah. the way we can show up for I elections, say, the way we boy, can show up for policy. I hope we show up because mm -hmm. I have five grandchildren yeah. and I'm thinking if something doesn't happen, my grandchildren will not know the country that I was taught and brought up on. Yeah. I, scary, I, I right? don't, it is, it is shocking to me. It's like, it is the possibility. Yeah. Is, um, uh, makes me so anxious that, uh, gives me a tummy ache. Yeah, I get it. It makes it hard for me to sleep well. Yeah. It's really tricky. Yeah. And it's interesting, I think, because when you talk about that, I think of all the all the incredible things you've seen over the course of your life. Right. You know, movements and marches and and things that I feel like we are we're figuring out now, my generation and, and the generation under mine, how to show up in our own way. And I think about the work that I get to do with Zoe, with your daughter. Right. You know, we... Yeah, see, that... The, my daughter was floating along, and she was a mom of three little mm -hmm. boys. Really difficult. And then all of a sudden, she saw a news story mm -hmm. about the children incarcerated behind in these cages out the border. Mm -hmm. And she thought, oh, that could be my child. Yeah. And went from zero to 60, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, uh, this is about humanity, was born. I, to watch it happen is, I, I, I'm so proud mm -hmm. and um, amazed. Not amazed that she could do it, amazed that it just flourished. Mm -hmm been a really incredible organization to be part of and, and to go to the border with Zoe and, and with Elsa and to spend time with these families and yeah. with these kids. And I think, again, to show up 
being willing to learn about what they're facing right. and to do the work to show up educated enough to understand what they're running from right. and and how we, yes. our government, has played a role in destabilizing those governments. Right. And so if anything, we have such a responsibility to each other. Right. You know, and, and I... See, here's the thing. I think a lot of people are frightened because there are so many things now because yeah. of the internet, because of Twitter or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. There is so many... There is so much that you think, oh my, I don't even know where to start. Yeah. And you start when something hits you in the tummy mm. and you think, okay... I'm going to do just that. If everyone did just that one thing, mm -hmm. we could take care of a lot of problems yes. instead of being overwhelmed, yeah. thinking I can't do anything. Yeah, pick the one that lights that fire in you. Yeah, right. And then dedicate yourself yeah. to it. Because everyone will be lit up about something. Right. And and we don't have to be all in on everything, but each of us should be all in on, on something. On one thing. I agree with you 100%. I love that. Yeah. Is that a perspective that you feel like you've come to or was that always a, a part of you? Were you always no, looking at something? No, it came to something? me. If I think about it, it came to me because in the beginning, mm. I was focused on becoming an actor. Training, auditioning, mm. getting, not getting. Just put my head down with... Un, un, unbelievable tenacity to get mm. to work and nothing else was mattered. Mm. I had no family, uh, you know, outside of my parents and my sister. I was not political, did not think about politics. I thought only about getting a job. And then slowly... I started to lift my head up mm. and have points of view about what people were doing in our country, sure. in the world. I always like to ask people actually how things began. When we talk about you know you breaking into the industry in your childhood and your family, right? Who who were you? Who was Henry at, at ten? Okay. And where did you grow up? Can you tell uh, us Manhattan? your story? 78th between Broadway and Amsterdam. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> with my partner, Lynn Oliver, excuse me, I write uh, Hank Zipser. Yeah. Hank Zipser lives in the apartment I grew up in. Amazing. And down the street goes to PS 87. So just a, um, a, a sidebar story, because this, this, this uh, killed me. <laughs> the Golden Globes last year, Timothée uh, Chalamet is there this wonderful young actor who is truly an amazement. Unbelievable. Okay. So I went up and I said, I, I need to hug you because you are truly gifted. He said, not only do I want to hug you, but when I was eight years old, you came to read Hank Zipser <gasps> at PS 87 oh. and I was in the fourth grade. No. Oh my God. I thought, what a circle. Wow. Really? I, I was I was just on cloud nine. That's so cool. Yeah. It that was okay. So there I am in my apartment with very short German Jews uh, who do not <laughs> want me to be an actor. Not a stable enough. No, career. my father wanted me to take over 
his business that he brought from Germany, which was importing and exporting wood. Hmm. He was the middleman in buying and selling wood. I knew that I wanted to be an actor from the beginning, from the from when I was old enough to reason. Really? Yeah. Your whole life? My whole life. So I'm living in this, uh, in this apartment. I'm failing at everything mm -hmm. because I find out at 31 I have a learning challenge. But as a kid, you didn't know. Didn't know. I just was embarrassed. I was ashamed. <laughs> and I was grounded. I, mm. I did not see the moon during my junior year of high school. I was never able to go out because nor I couldn't watch TV. You know, and at that time, TV, they were tubes. So I had to turn off the television and judge it right because when my parents came home, they would touch the top of the television. And if it was warm, they would know that I was watching when I wasn't supposed to because I was supposed to be studying. Little did we know I could study from now until the end of time. I wasn't getting it. Wow. So uh, then I, of course, had to go to private school, went to McBurney School for Boys, failed everything, applied to college, 23, got into two, one I never heard of before in Missouri, and the other was Emerson in Boston. Wow. So now I, and I have no self-esteem at this point. Because you'd... Because I'm failing, because people are telling me I'm lazy or I'm stupid or whatever. And is that coming from your parents or your teachers? Everybody. 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 Wow. Yeah. And that has to be hard as a boy. I don't in know. That era. I don't know what it was like for a girl. Yeah. But I want to tell you that you, I kept thinking, I, I want to do well. I'm mm -hmm. Every pencil is sharpened. I'm ready. Mm -hmm. I have my plastic bag with all of my, you know, utensils, yeah. my protractor. I, I um, put, you know, at that time there were loose leaf notebooks mm -hmm. and I would reinforce all the holes so you, they wouldn't tear out of my loose leaf, you know, my lined paper. So I, I was prepared. And then I what just, would happen? My brain would, uh, would not uh, compute. So were you having trouble, for example, in class? Reading. So you could listen and take notes and do those I things, but it was the reading. Ears. Interesting. But I cannot learn through my eye. And what, ha what happens when you try to read on a page? I, my eyes get very tired and I can fall asleep within seven or eight minutes. Wow. I... Uh, uh, Words are dropped out. I completely, uh, comprehension is not so good. And do words themselves, do they jumble or is? I can't even sound the word out. Interesting. To this day over the computer, the word schedule, because I have to use it so often, is up there because I have to look at it in order to write it because I cannot sound the word out after all of this time. Wow. Yeah. So then, you've always learned by listening, by listening and talking and repeating and rhythm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And then my body, you know, when I'm learning my lines, I have to read it very slowly, okay. go over it and over it. And then as we rehearse, my body memory, my muscle memory 
helps me remember the words mm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I I always find, and I've said this to writers before, that sometimes, and you know what it's like being on a TV show. I do. Every episode is written by a different writer yes. or pair of writers right. from the writer's room. Right. So for people listening at home, that means that there, you know, there's different brains giving your character the words, and this is right. you know one character. And don't forget this: a lot of time, the, they write, mm-hmm. sacrificing your character. Oh yeah, to make it work for them. Oh yeah, I mean that motivate. Please, that's a whole other thing. But what I learned on a show, and I and I finally had to talk to these, this pair of writers who I loved, but I just said the way you write my dialogue, the the words. They don't come out of my mouth that way. They don't feel right in my mouth. What did they say she to you? talks. It was an interesting conversation. Luckily, they were not the kind of egotistical megalomaniacs that creative people were. They can be. able to to fix it. Yes, because we started talking about the rhythm of her speech and the way that my my lexicon for this person had developed and her catchphrases and her things. And it was really interesting because I realized that some people wrote words in ways that were very hard for me to say. Right, right, right. And other people's words came out in a rhythm, almost like learning a song Without where I'd learn it right away. I'd like that, you know? And, and, and when I do ADR, which for people listening at home is when you have to go in and, and speak over your dialogue to correct issues with sound, well, ADR let, to me let, is like Let's explain music. it. Like you're outside. Yeah. And an airplane goes by. Yeah. And it goes by in the loud roar of the engine is completely over the line you've yes. just said. Yes. Now you have to go into a studio yep. and watch it back and get it perfectly mm-hmm. to fit your lips and mouth. Yes. Marlon Brando, a great actor, lived for ADR. I love ADR. He changed his entire performance. Did he? I hate it. Really? <gasps> oh. Hate it? Oh, you're like my sweet friend, Elias Kateas. He hates ADR. I love ADR. I hate it. Wow. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. Are you able to change your rhythm or performance still getting it in your mouth? That can definitely be tricky, but yes, if I need to, you know, I, I remember in one instance, uh, for time, a scene in an episode had really been condensed. Right. And so there were important beats missing. Right. And I said, it doesn't work. We got to go back and let me try to get some of the intonation and some of the upset. It, and, and some, some of, of the, the understanding yeah. of the scene. Let me try to put it back in with less lines. Wow. And, and I think we did okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But I also, I don't know, I'm... I'm. That's amazing. My face often betrays me. What I'm feeling is very apparent. So really? I don't know that I could change something enough to be observed as feeling different. But who knows? Maybe. Yeah. I do really like it. But though. even that you have that thought. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, to get a condensed scene, to to imbue it with the... the, the feelings that are missing. Hmm. Okay, that's really hard. 
That's really difficult. We, it's a weird thing we do for yeah. a living, you know? You know what I think? I think like night shooting, even yeah. though it is really difficult and, um, you know, it's against the rhythm of the human being, yeah. people are making bread and we're making magic in the middle of the night. Yeah. I, that is it's so romantic to me. Oh. I love the way you think about this. Yeah. You make me excited about our jobs. Yeah, I love our job. I do too. I love our job. People ask me, what is your favorite, you know, character? Mm. There are some, like, I will always be indebted to the Fonz. Oh my God. Because he introduced me to the world. Yeah. But good, bad, well-written, not so well-written, well-acted, not so well-acted, I love them all. Yeah. I love that I get to do it. Yeah. And that I get to do it now, even now, all these years later. Well, it's, it's, you're still, you are just so much fun to watch. Well, thank you. You really are. Let me tell you, there are a lot of human beings my age that are waiting by the phone or have put the phone in the closet because it no longer rings. Yeah. I mean, I am so cognizant of how lucky I am. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so cool. Okay, listeners, I'm going to talk to you about our sponsors. But first, I want to clarify for all the people who are new to the Work in Progress audience, hi, so glad you're here, that we only work with sponsors that we personally believe in. These incredible sponsors are the people who make our podcast possible, and I'm so excited that we get to work with people to bring you this content. And I also just want to be clear, I'm never going to talk to you about brands that I don't believe in or brands that I don't use myself. Every sponsor that we approve for this podcast has been personally tested by me and our team, and that's why we're happy to talk to you about them today. All right, peeps, I'm excited to tell you about a company that I really like called Rothy's. They make stylish shoes for women and girls out of recycled plastic water bottles. The shoes are super comfortable and fully machine washable. Rothy's are the perfect everyday shoes for life on the go. They're cute, comfy, and they go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. They come in an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns, and they're available in a range of styles like sneakers, loafers, points, and more. They launch new colors and patterns every few weeks and they sell out constantly. Rothy's are seamlessly knit using thread made from plastic water bottles, so they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. That's right, there's zero break-in period in these. Because they're made from repurposed plastic water bottles, Rothy's has diverted over 35 million water bottles from landfills already. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash Sophia. That's rothys.com, R-O. T-H-Y-S dot com slash Sophia, S-O-P-H-I-A, to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash Sophia today. Did you do any jobs as a kid before you became an actor? Did you have yes. a, like a high school yes. job or... I was, first, I was a counselor in camp. Shut up, me too. Loved it, loved it. Oh, I'm, and I'm still a camp counselor. Uh, nine-year-old boys. Yeah. Yes, there was, uh, don't mispronounce my name or I'll punch you in the mouth, Z-Luck, Bobby Z-Luck. Uh, and everybody had uh, a nickname. I, oh, I was a travel agent. 
where I would sell, you, you rented a car mm -hmm. and you got a ticket and you went to Europe and you drove through a Europa car, it was called. Oh, and fun. I would try out different accents um, selling these things to people on the, and then I sold enough where I got a cruise on the bottom deck of the boat to Bermuda. So I vomited my way to Bermuda. Fabulous. Because <laughs> when you're down on the last deck, it is. Well, you can't see the horizon. No, there. and you, and it's pretty rocky. Wow. How was Bermuda? Bermuda was pink sand. Wow. I went on a motor scooter for the first time and then left it by the side of the road because it scared the hell out of me. Fair. And I bought my first orange, burnt orange, cashmere sweater. Ooh. And I want to say at Tattinger's department store in Bermuda. Do you still have it? I don't. Oh, but damn. I have a replacement. Okay. I That's don't. pretty great. I have a collection I like <laughs> cable knit sweaters. I mean, I get it. Yeah, thank you. I still have the very first, and the, funnily enough, the first thing I ever bought with an acting paycheck was a jacket that was burnt orange. Wow. I'm not kidding, and where? I still have it. Where, where did you buy I it? I bought it at Bloomingdale's. Okay. Yeah. I met my wife in Beverly Hills when I had enough money doing Happy Days mm. to buy my own sport coat. Ooh. And I went in and I got a, a sport coat at Jerry Magnin's, uh, the boutique on Rodeo Drive. Yeah. It was very Italian, very European chic. Yeah. This guy. And I, my wife was there and I asked her which uh, sport coat I should get. And that's what launched your love affair. Yeah, 41 years ago. Wow. Yeah. What sport coat did you get? Uh, it was a, a blue velvet Ooh. sport coat with red piping. Ooh. Hello. Very chic. Yes. And uh, I just found yesterday, yesterday, because, uh, you know, we, we just went through the fires. Oh, yeah. And what do you take? Look around my beautiful house and what do you take? So I took like handfuls of pictures. Mm -hmm. And I had these bags and dog food and my dogs and um, some of the cable knit sweaters. Yeah. Because I, I love them. But, uh, and, and a ball signed by the cast of Happy Days, a softball. Yes, great. I don't know why I put that in the car. Because that's, an, you, that's irreplaceable. Yeah. So now I'm trying to digitize all my photographs. Bundles of 25 photographs. And I found a picture in that jacket. In that jacket, amazing. Unbelievable. Oh, I'm going to need to see it. Yeah. Now okay. I've got to find it again. Well. But I think it's upstairs in my office. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that makes me very excited. Now, did Jerry Magnin, did that, was there a relation with the, with the store iMagnin? Yes. He is yes. either grandfather okay. or father. So I have... This is very weird. We, you and I are having a moment with burnt orange because I have one of my grandfather's iMagnin sweaters oh, wow. still. And my grandfather passed away when I was 24. Right. And I, I so mean- two years ago? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I guard this thing 
I mean, with my life. Yeah. It's well, like one know, of my favorite what things I, I hear, own. one of the most important things in your life is family. Yeah. You 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 keep going back to family in um, yeah. no matter what we're talking about. No, it's great. If I may ask about yours, I'm, yes, you may. I'm curious about you know because when which you, one? Well, when you talk about but when you were young, I'm still so oh, interested the short in Germans. your story. Yes, because you, you talk about how important you know education was to your family, right. and obviously they didn't know you didn't know that no, you were dyslexic right. then. And, you know, this business, this sort of sturdy, stable business. Right. Um, people may not know this, but your parents coming here from Germany escaped yeah. the Holocaust. Yes. And that is true. Which I admired. I didn't particularly care for them, but I admired mm. that they had the fortitude, mm -hmm. the foresight, mm -hmm. the um, the temperament to leave their home country, leave everything, leave family to flee. and start brand new in a, with a different language, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a new country. Do you think that that, because now, you know, we have so much research at our fingertips. We understand trauma. We right. understand, you know, what war does to people and right. violence. Do, do you think back now and, and, does it make sense to think maybe they were so staunch because because of that it's opportunity very because well, of one that one of the let, let's go, let, let's call it the way it is mm. one of the reasons is because they were german mm. it's a very severe point of view i'm sure that my mother had um major trauma that she never she never saw her family again i can't imagine so yes, I, but it was so painful growing up that it took me a very long time to have any room mm. for understanding anything. Yeah, any kind of grace. Yeah. Well, because as a kid, when, when you don't get the love that you so badly desire from your family, it doesn't matter if they're traumatized or not, you're wounded. Right. And then you're wounded for a long, long time. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, that stuff sticks yeah. with you. How, how do you think you began to get out from under that that kind of wounding? Because you are one of the kindest, most jovial. You you are like a person who leaves magic pixie dust everywhere Ooh. you go. I didn't know I did that. No, you and really I'm happy do. I do that. You you light up a room like I swear that there there must be something we're just trained not to see, but I'm I'm convinced that you leave like a trail of twinkle lights everywhere you go. Wow. And thank I you. wonder First of all, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I, I mean I, I don't think about that. All I think about is I I I, I realize I am unbelievably grateful mm. that I'm on the earth. <laughs> that I get to to live this life. Yeah. That I get to do all the different jobs that I do. Yeah. Gratitude. Now, is it is it that I am I'm able to to be grateful? No. No, I'm going to answer my own question. Okay. I've always been grateful. I've always mm. when something wonderful happened, I just was this is a wonderful thing. I never get tired. I never get over it. I never get used to it. Mm. 
I think gratitude is a major component to living on this earth. Mm. Yeah, that's what I think. I love it. I just wonder how, because as you talk about, you know, you, you imprint with a lot of shame when you're being negatively reinforced. Right. And as you said, when you're called lazy and, and, and you're called stupid and you know how hard you're trying. Right. Did you develop workarounds? You know, how, how did you begin to I get away from the doubt? Yeah, I never have gotten away from the doubt. I still have major oh. doubt. I will tell you, there was a seminal moment. I speak publicly. So I go all over the country and Canada and I, I speak to groups or whatever it is. And I was always so nervous. Oh my gosh, what happens if I forget? What happens if my timing is off? Mm -hmm. What happens if this group, this is going to be the group that doesn't care about mm -hmm. what I'm saying at all. And one day, maybe 10 years ago, mm. I'm walking up the stairs. They said, and ladies and gentlemen, Henry Winkler. And I'm walking up the stairs and I said to myself, okay, you can be nervous, but you actually know what you're doing. You have done this speech many times. Mm. So either you can be completely uncomfortable or you can just let that go, do what you know how to do, and enjoy yourself. Wow. And I'm telling you, that was that conversation I had with myself was in three steps up to the stage. And I never look back. Wow. Now, I get nervous, but never as nervous as I was. That's so cool. And it, you have to be ready and it has to click for you. That is true. Otherwise, you know, uh, people, my, my wife would say to me when, for the longest time when we first met, wow, you give all your power away. You make everybody else right and you completely doubt yourself. Hmm. You just, you know, like throw it out there. And I had no idea what she was saying. It was like she was speaking Russian to me until the day I, the penny dropped and I went, oh, I get it. Wow. I know something also. I know this stuff too. Yeah. But I would treat uh, the executives at uh, ABC or um, colleagues mm. with, you know, like, oh, sir. And they, what, they hated that I called them sir mm. because they were not that much older than I was. And then I realized that I could actually just say, Michael, how are you? And not have to say, sir. Mm. And everything that sir meant. A friend of mine said something to me, and then I, I kind of turned it into my own phrase that I've offered to other people. Right. Because I was experiencing a version of that kind of doubt. Right. And, and she said, they asked you to be there. Wow. And I thought, oh, right. And then- And what do you say? I've tried to offer to people- Right. That if you're gripped by, by self-doubt- Right. Just remember that your inclusion in the room means you have the merit to be there. Wow. That's good. You know? Yeah, I do like know. If you're there, 
you're there. You bet. <laughs> and and that has really calmed me when I'm feeling nervous or or afraid that I have to prove something or convince people that, you know, I, I really do know what I'm doing. It's like, yeah, I know I know what I'm doing. You know, Malcolm Gladwell says that you're an expert on something if you've done it for 10,000 hours. And I filmed my first show for 35,000 hours. So at this point, I better be a real freaking expert at, at storytelling and, uh, and the you technical bet. things that we do. But you know, that, on is a, set. that is a wonderful uh, point of view to mm. pass on. Mine is that they don't know when you're going in to go for a job, mm. they don't know what they want. Mm. somebody is going to get the job. Why not you? I like that. Why not you? That there is no right, there is no wrong, there is you creating the space. Mm. How do yeah. you... How do you get there though? Because something I'm always curious about, I really like parameters. Right. If I have parameters to work in, right. then in I feel totally free. Freedom. Yes. Absolutely. But but a blank page to me right. feels like a nightmare. Right. So I'm curious, how do you how do you fill the page? How do you put yourself in a position as an actor where you say, This is what I'm gonna make and then show them? This is oh because I want the job. So <laughs> my my um my uh, journey is if I cannot be right and I cannot be wrong, I can go in there and do what comes to my mind, mm -hmm. what comes to my instinct. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time it worked. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time people said, oh. We like that. I like that. Come come and be with us. Mm -hmm. Do you know? The, the very first job I had was the Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh, I wanted to talk about this. Yay. Okay. So the Mary Tyler Moore show for your listeners was like the friends of its time yes. in 1973. And also revolutionary being centered around this woman. Right. And, and a, a woman who, uh, an accomplished woman. Yes. Right. A smart, single smart. Yes. woman who advocated for equal pay and right. in the seventies. Yeah. Oh God, she was so cool. What was that oh. like to go on the Mary Tyler Moore show? Well, the, first of all, it was populated by unbelievably talented people. Mm. So I had four lines. But when I went to audition, my very first audition, after uh, landing like a week before in California, I only had enough money to spend a month. Wow. I went in and the producer, Ed Weinberger, said, I don't have a script but you're gonna sit at a table by yourself and ask for the salt. It will be a dinner party at uh, Sue Ann's or Betty White, Betty mm -hmm. White's. So while he, we were talking about Yale and, and going to drama school and showing him pictures that I carried with me in a paper bag from Ralph's because I didn't have a portfolio, Pictures of what? Of me in plays. In plays. Yeah, oh. just so you could see my characters. Oh. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That oh breaks my, God. my heart in the oh best way. Yeah. So, and I took a glass on his desk. Mm. I poured the pencils out, picked up a pencil, clinked the glass, and said, do not bother yourself. When you get a moment, could you pass the salt? 
And I got back to the motel I was staying at in my green capri, because I thought it looked sporty. (laughs) And I got the job. It was my first job in Hollywood, four lines on the Mary Tyler Moore show. What did it feel like day one on the set? Not having a sense of self, I had to get over that I was worthy Mm. to be on the set. And then I just started to, I ad-libbed, you know, I just said whatever came to my mind. Do you remember any of the things that you said? Uh, (laughs) One, I I opened the door and one of my lines was, "Um, hello, come in, I'm fired. And I um, (laughs) ad-libbed that to, uh, I'm Rotor State. Mm. Yeah. And um, I, so nice to meet you. I've just been fired. And uh, then I went from there. How fun. Yeah. And so what happened next? How do you go from Four Lines on the Mary Tyler Moore show to Happy Days? I go to Paramount Studios. Mm. It's so beautiful, that lot. uh, The lot is beautiful. Yeah. Well, when I got there, the parking lot that is now the major parking lot was a Western town. Oh, wow. And the, the tank in which you park was filled with water, and it is where the original Ben-Hur, where the, the sea parted. No. In that tank. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So I go and audition. Mm-hmm. I have six lines, and I changed my voice. And I didn't know this until that second. Changing my body, changing my voice was a key that completely unlocked my imagination. And then I was like a crazy person. I said anything that came to my mind. Wow. And then you were the Fonz. And then I threw the script up in the air. I sauntered out of the room. And two weeks later, they called me on my birthday, October 30th, 1973, and said, would you like to be in this show? And I was about to get back on the plane to go home because my money had run out. What a birthday present. Holy moly. And then how soon were you working on the show? Uh, so that was September, um, October, September 18th to um, September 18th to October 18th. Then I, um, I stayed f- to, for the audition, mm-hmm. October 30th. We made the pilot. I went home for Thanksgiving. I dated a young lady by the name of Glenda. Like the Good Witch. Well, she wasn't so good. Oh, yeah. unfortunately. No, because um, <laughs> she she wanted to go upstate. This was going to be the first time I was ever leaving my parents and everything for a major holiday. Mm. But she wanted to bring her best girlfriend. And I thought, something is wrong here. And um, I came back. They called me when I went home Mm. uh, around Thanksgiving and said, we were picked up. We're going to start filming. We need you back here again in uh, December. Wow. And then we went on the air in 1974, I think February 4th, I think. I don't remember. Wow. And 
Fonzie was one of only two characters. It was Fonzie and Howard Cunningham. Right. Who appeared in all 255. That's a crazy number. I did, 255 no idea episodes. That's true. Isn't that wild? That's wild. Yeah. Wow. Tom you were Boston. you were in all 255. Yeah. What was what was it like to be on a show for that many years? Because we did 187 episodes of One Tree Hill and I felt like it was my entire existence. Right. So how, what's it like to do 255 okay. episodes of a show? So I always thought, if I'm going to sign the dotted line, if I'm going to sign the contract, mm. my job is to make it the best it can be. Mm. The most difficult thing was to do that many episodes. We did like 26 episodes a year. Wow. Your brain, and there was not like this, you know, you do um, four and then you get a week off. Well, they do that on sitcoms now, right? Yeah. Mm. I've never, yeah, by we don't eighth, do that on dramas. <laughs> no, but by the eighth episode, before we got a, a moment to, to take a, a rest, my brain was like cream cheese. Mm. It, I had to fight with all my might to stay focused because, I, you know, you, it just is too much. And you're learning so much dialogue. Well, you have every to memorize day. three different scripts because they're rewriting. So you read it Monday, mm -hmm. you go down and you work, um, rehearse it a lightly, a light rehearsal. Mm -hmm. uh, they rewrite what they heard at the table, mm -hmm. the writers, for Tuesday. Yep. Wednesday, you show all of the producers. They rewrite for Thursday. Thursday, you show the cameras everything that you've rehearsed. Mm -hmm. They rewrite Thursday night to Friday. And then in between, you do your first public showing at four o'clock in the afternoon on Friday yep. to an audience. Mm -hmm. They rewrite mm -hmm. between that performance and the seven o'clock performance and you are memorizing new jokes. Mm -hmm. So you have to really concentrate. Not as easy as it looks or as, as people think no. it might be. I'll never forget when I was working in Chicago, my technical advisor who'd been an undercover cop for 29 years said, I thought you guys had it easy. He goes, this is harder than any job I've ever done. Right. And I just have to sit here and tell you when you look right and when you look wrong. Right. And we were, I mean, we were dying laughing. And what did they do? They, uh, that guy or woman mm -hmm. taught you how to hold a gun, carry a gun? I mean, luckily for me, I knew that stuff already. I, I came in as a hobbyist and... Uh, oh, no know. kidding. What oh, does yeah. that mean? That means you are, uh, um, you have your own guns? Mm -hmm. <gasps> um, I'm pistols? like the most progressive person around, but yeah, I, uh, I well, started... Well, I, I don't think owning a gun labels you. But I, a lot of people do. Yeah, I think and that's what's crazy. interesting is I, I get a lot of, when I talk about gun control and advocating for sensible gun legislation, a lot of gun people are like, you're one of those Hollywood liberals who doesn't know anything. And I'm like, I've been a sharpshooter since I was 12. Step aside, sir. Really? Uh, yeah. Isn't that great? It's fun. It's a fun hobby. I, I have a, a certificate from camp because I was good yeah. in riflery. Yeah. But that's as close as I got. That's where it but started that's great. for me. So what is your, do you, do you have a favorite, um, a, a rifle or a pistol, or you like both? I really like both. Really? Yeah. I, I really like, I do a lot you of go tactical to a, you training. You go to a range? Yeah. 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 
I, I did that. I for really it. enjoy it. When I got a, uh, I got an arc, which means that I got several episodes on a show called Numbers. Yeah. And I was an FBI agent, and I had to go uh, to a range and mm-hmm. learn to shoot and hold the gun mm-hmm. and how you walk into a, a house. Yeah. Clear. Yeah. Clear. Yeah. yeah it's, it's all it's very technical stuff. Yeah. It's fun. I love that stuff. Yeah. That's the part of our job I like the most. Yeah. Do you stay in touch with um actors that you uh did all those episodes with on any show? Yeah. You do. Yeah, my girlfriend Hillary, who I, I did the first six years of One Tree Hill with, actually just got married and <gasps> the little cluster of us that's the tightest, we're right. we're all at her wedding together, which nice. was so fun. I'm still very tight with my my girlfriend from Chicago who I did the show with there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I made this really funny movie with a great actress named Brittany Snow, and mm-hmm. we are still really tight. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't stay tight with everybody. No, you do not. But you really, there's people who yeah. you maintain long friendships with. And then there's the people like you talk about who you see out who you did a thing with once and it's like the best catch up ever. Yeah, right. And then maybe it'll happen again in five years, but it's, yeah, it's right. nice to have all of that. And then I've got also some people from some crews that I'm really close to. Yeah. Like my two camera operators from Chicago, I'm really tight with. And so Isn't I- Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Because the crew, if you respect your crew, they will kill for you. Yeah. They will make sure you're comfortable, taken care of. Yeah. The crew, I they are unbelievable. Yeah. Because when the actor gets to go home, they it's the last shot. It's mm-hmm. um it's it you've shot all night, yep. you go home, the crew has to put all of the props away. Yep. The makeup away, yep. the cameras away, mm-hmm. the lights away. They never get to go home. Yeah. I I tend to stay and hang with the crew for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I'm a crew kid. It's like, that's what I like. They're lovely people. That's what made- Talented people. On my first show, I started directing in the last couple of seasons. Right. And that was so fun for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for you, because you made such an amazing shift over as a director. But I did that because I couldn't get hired as an actor. I was typecast. So people would say- From playing the font. Oh, Yeah. So people would say, he is so talented. Oh my God, he's so funny. But he was the Fonz. So I had to reinvent. So I started producing the very first show that I sold with a man named John Rich Mm. uh, was um, MacGyver. Which... By the way, I just can't even, the fact that you can say that out loud, like one of the most iconic shows of all time, you're like, it's such a casual thing I sold. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. It was great. And now it's back on. I know. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's so cool. How did, how did that come about? So toward the end of Happy Days, Mm. part of my compensation, aside from the money, was a production company. Mm. And part of the production company, I got an office at Paramount. I got a secretary. I got someone to run my company. Wow. Oh, this is a big production deal. Oh, this was a big, but they don't do that so much anymore. No, they do not. But I also got two on-the-air commitments, which means if I brought ABC a show that they liked, 
they would put it on no questions asked. Oh, they definitely don't do that The anymore. first one was <laughs> MacGyver. The second one was Mr. Sunshine, a half an hour comedy about a blind English professor. Wow. Uh, and it was uh, Jeff Tambor was the, he was brilliant as the blind wow. English professor. And a, um, a precursor. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And you've just, you've had so many incredible roles. I mean, from from Scream to... Now, Scream. Oh, God, okay. the best. So I used to go and have sushi on Ventura Boulevard in the valley with Wes Craven. And we oh. would have it once a month or something like that. And it was lovely to talk to him. As quiet and as demure and um, as tweedy as a college professor. Wow, how interesting. And out of that mind came, I can't even watch his movies. Right. And he called me up and he said, look, I've got a small part uh, as the um, principal in Scream. Would you like to be in it? I said, of course I would. So I went and now when you shoot a horror movie, you shoot more film than anything else because every cut in order to scare, you've got to, you've got to have detail. Hmm. So the the amount of shooting was amazing. So now it's coming out, and there the Fonz is right there again. The the uh, executive for the company that was producing it said, "Well, we can't put Henry's name on it. We can't put Henry's name on the one sheet on the on the poster in front of the the. We cannot um, advertise. He can't put him on the film because he was the Fonz, and he will knock the balance of the movie off." Now this went on, and I went okay. I but I I'm in the movie. I had a good time, and this went on until they had test screenings, at which time I got. Applause when I came on the screen. Mm. Now they call me and they say, "Would you like to do press for the movie?" <laughs> I said, "You wouldn't put my name on the movie." Uh -huh. Now you, are, well, they're very reactive. And now, of course, executives. I did, and then I did. Wow, yeah. but you, you know, we. I mean, that movie for me was just so, it was iconic growing up. And then I think about the Waterboy and Arrested Development <gasps> and Parks and Rec and Barry. Barry. Like, do, do you have a favorite when you look back at these I things? Don't. They're all I fun. I don't. Okay. Uh, I called Adam Sandler and I thanked him for putting me in the Hanukkah song. Mm. That was, I just was so thrilled to be in the Hanukkah song. Yeah. And I, I, that's what I did. So now I'm making the worst movie ever made. I think it's called Control Tower, no. starring Kiefer Sutherland. Okay. But I mean the worst movie ever made by a human being. I've done one or two of those. Okay. <laughs> so they, they fire the director, and before they hire another director, Kiefer takes over and directs for two days, who is incredible. Cool. Okay. Yes. So Kiefer takes over, and then while I'm making that movie, at the um, craft service table, which is where um, the, you go to snack on a set, mm -hmm. I get a call. Would you like to be in The Waterboy? And I go, yes, I would. And I get to make this movie and then four others with Adam Sandler. Wow. 
my gosh. He doesn't dress very well, but he's brilliant. <laughs> he is in charge of every detail yeah. of everything that he makes. That's so cool. He just knows. He, I, I think this is true. I don't know. I don't think this is a, um, a myth, but he hated the way the studio was cutting the promos, mm. the commercials, the, the previews for his film. Mm. He bought the company and cut his own previews. Wow. He bought the, the company that was cutting his commercials, and um, I think so. That's amazing. Yeah. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful fellow. Yeah, I've really heard that he's brilliant. I love him so much. That's so cool. Everyone talks about how for someone who makes such, you know, funny films that he really is just so sharp and everything is so specific. And I, oh I really, I admire that a yeah, lot. Yeah, truly, truly. But he really should get out of those, some of those sweat clothes. <laughs> um, <laughs> then I, I get to do Arrested Development mm -hmm. with Mitch Hurwitz, who is an out and out genius. Yeah. I mean, that show is just beyond. It's beyond. Then I get to do this 15-minute show on Adult Swim by these young, funny human beings, Megan Mullally and Rob Hubel and Rob Corddry and um, uh, David Wayne and all these creators. And I didn't understand. You cannot... You can't tell anybody, but okay. I did it for six years. I didn't understand one joke. I just said what they wrote, and I thought, I don't know what the hell this is talking about. <laughs> I had a butterfly collection, and if if I if I uh, can I say jerked off a the butterfly, the the um, the liquid that came out of the butterfly cured cancer. What the hell are they talking about? But I said it very, very carefully, and I uh, enjoyed my butterflies, and they would sit on my shoulders, and um, off we went. And off you went. And now Barry. And now Barry. My God, well, that's good. Well, oh, Barry. I am driving down Ventura Boulevard again, in the valley. Okay. I have just left an estate planning meeting. Interesting. This is a meeting I didn't get at all. <laughs> it's what happens to everything, your house and your things and what you're leaving to the children and if you're going to leave it to, to a charity. Right. Or whatever. So this is the meeting. I'm driving with my wife. I get a call. You're on a short list. Bill Hader wants to meet you. Bill Hader, HBO. HBO? I've never worked for HBO. I've watched Bill Hader for the last, I don't know, eight or nine years on, on Saturday Night Live. Brilliant. Brilliant? Yeah. And HBO. I said, okay, it's a short list. Is Dustin Hoffman on that list? <laughs> because if Dustin Hoffman is on that list, I'm not going in because he's going to get it. Because he's a movie star and he's an Oscar winner. They said, no, he's not on the list. I went. My son, Max, who was a director, mm -hmm. who just directed his third movie. Who I went to college with. Yes. Isn't that fun? Wow. Yeah. At USC? Yep. Maxie. 
He He's directed me in the audition. No. In this house. He would yell at me as I was going over. He said, you cannot make this stuff up. I said, I've been doing that my whole career. He said, respect the writer, Dad. <laughs> I love it. And then he, and then I go in and I meet Bill. I make him laugh. Oh, my God. I uh, drive home. And you wait. And then I get a call from Bill. Hey, I've written two scenes yesterday. Uh, you want to come in and play? I email mm. the scenes immediately to Max. He now directs me on the phone. Amazing. I go in. I sit there waiting. Now I meet Alec Berg, who is a genius. His partner. And now I make him smile because he is so close to the vest, Alec, that I think it is tattooed on. Wow. That's how close his vest is. I leave. There's a young girl sitting on the stairs, uh, uh, a young woman on the stairs waiting to go in. I said, you're going to have a good time. They're very open. And I walk out the door. Now she's watching me walk back and forth because I've lost my car in the parking lot <laughs> and I cannot find it. And it turns out it's Sarah Goldberg who is unbelievable, Sally, on the show. And there, that's, uh, and Barry, and now we're going to start our third season uh, next March. Amazing. We have to wait until next March. Oh, it's killing me. I love when you want to go to work like that. <gasps> What a gift. Oh my God. What amazing things you've made. There's no place like home, and making your home beautiful, in my opinion, is the ultimate form of self-care. When I get back from a work trip, all I want is to curl up in my bed, and now I curl up in my Brooklyn and sheets. With the holidays quickly approaching, maybe it's time to gift the ones you love, or yourself, hey, no shame, with something a little cozier, like bedding, loungewear, or towels. And lucky for you, Brooklinen is delivering comfort all season long. Brooklinen has over 50,000 five-star reviews and was the first D2C bedding company, meaning they work directly with manufacturers and directly with customers to avoid the markup usually associated with luxury sheets. Do you like softness, comfort, Essentials to help you relax? Brooklinen has it all. I cannot recommend their products more for graduates, newlyweds, friends, or family, or treating yourself to the bedroom upgrade you deserve. Get 10% off and free shipping anytime when you shop at brooklinen.com and use the promo code SOFIA. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. To get 10% off and free shipping, go to brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and use promo code SOPHIA, S-O-P-H-I-A. Brooklinen, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. What do you like to do, though, when you're not working? Fly fishing for trout. I started learning to fly fish two and? years ago. It's the best ever. Okay, there you go. It's so much fun. I went to Alaska, <gasps> fly fishing. For salmon? King salmon. <gasps> Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. 
It was unbelievable. And I saw a bald eagle. I was like, I was standing in waders in a river in Alaska crying, just like, look at how amazing the world is. Oh my God. It's true. Yeah. It is so gorgeous. <laughs> oh. And it is so cleansing. And then you put the fish back. Yeah. We, I, I, you know, we catch trout in Idaho or Montana or Wyoming or oh. Colorado and take a picture. Yeah. And then put the uh, the oh, fish yeah. back and catch them next year. Yeah. I mean, I usually, I, I release all except the one that's for dinner. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I but do that know. feels okay. Hey, uh, it's perfectly okay. I like being connected if to I my food. If I had to eat, uh, I would eat um, the fish. Yeah. I just, I don't eat trout in a restaurant because I find them so majestic mm. that. That's cool. I just. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you fly fish and. Go to you the movies. Break, you go to the movies. Okay. Go to the go to Broadway. Oh, have you ever been on Broadway? I have been on Broadway three times. Ugh. The first time we closed pretty much in one night. Well, I was taking off my makeup. They were ripping out the sink. Great. The second one <laughs> was a Neil Simon play with John Ritter, oh. and I ran on in that play for nine months. Wow. The third play. Just as Sandy hit the the hurricane yeah. in New York City that flooded the subway, yes. flooded everything so that no one from the tri-state area could get to the a play. Uh, and that was called the Performers. Mm. I was the the Lifetime Achievement Award for the porno industry. It was a comedy, it was a love story, it was funny. <laughs> Wow. Funny. And that closed in seven nights. Mm. So I need to go back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a natural disaster got in the way of have your you ever done? Have you ever done theater? I did theater, theater, theater all through high school, but I've never done theater. Professional theater? Professionally, and I think I want to. Oh, my God. It I like so it. It is so exhilarating. Yeah. It is frightening, and, and, and then it is not. Yeah. That's another thing that I say to people. The anticipatory fear mm. is worse than the actuality. Yes. and But it's the anticipatory fear, that anxiety, that can be crippling oh, for it people. can be. And our job mm. is to beat it into submission. Mm. How do you do that for yourself? I talk myself out of things. I was offered, in 1979, I was offered to do the American version of The Christmas Carol playing Scrooge. Okay. I thought, so many actors have done this and have done it brilliantly. Who do I think I am that mm. I could do this? Mm. And I walked around and talked myself right out of it until I said, okay, come on. You can not jump off the precipice and fly and just kind of live in a hole mm. or you can take a risk and see what happens. Mm. I like that. Take the risk, why take not? Take the risk. You Would you call becoming a children's book author a risk or no. a or a or That a was a time project? filler. Really? An agent that I had at a company called ICM, International... Mm creative management or whatever it's called, was now a manager. Mm. And I didn't have a manager. And I convinced him to take me on as a manager. 
to manage my career. Again, a lull in my career. Mm. Nothing was happening. And he said, write books for children about your dyslexia. I said, I am dyslexic. I believe I'm stupid. I can't write a book. I have nothing to say. That's it. I go back again. My second meeting, they are now taking the art off the walls of that particular company because it has imploded. And he said to me, I'll introduce you to my friend, Lynn Oliver, write books for children about your dyslexia. We are now writing our 36th novel. Hank Zipser. Hank Zipser. And now we have Alien Superstar. That's the latest. That's the Tell latest. Tell me about it. Okay. You guys, this book, we, I'm lucky. I got an early copy. This book is so wonderful. It's wonderful. We're literally high-fiving on the couch. It's Thank you. wonderful. Okay, so we were told by our um, publishers that they didn't want to do any more hang zipsers. We had done 28. And when you're told that they, you can't write that character anymore, it is a phenomenal motivator. <laughs> phenomenal on coming up with a brand new character. So we both, Lynn and I, have worked in television. Uh, she produced and uh, wrote. I have uh, produced and acted. Mm. Directed a little. Mm. So we took that and we thought children like aliens... I like aliens. I am convinced an alien will land in my vicinity and will be friendly. I just know that. I, I just know that. I love that. Yeah. I'm with you. Thank you. Uh, so we'll meet them together. Great. Okay. I will call you as soon as. Yeah. The only so, thing is, though, I can, the, uh, my lawn will be ruined. But it's a 13-year-old a boy, an alien. He must leave his planet because it's repressive. His grandmother said, you must leave. She is the master mechanic mm. for the starship fleet on their planet. She cobbles together a, a new ship for him out of used and discarded parts. Mm. Just at the right moment before he is, it is almost as if their will is taken away um, so mm. that um, at 13, uh, you no longer care about taste or mm. smell or the arts or color. Mm. Or, you get hit you know, with indifference. Yes, indifference, so that oh. you don't make any problem for the government. Mm. He takes off in his ship and he flies past Saturn with its pink and brown you know, uh, rings. And then he, oh, there's the Milky Way with billions of stars. And then there is a satellite that is in, in, in just imbued with USA. And then he lands on the only address he knows on Earth. Mm. The back lot of Universal Studios. <laughs> Perfect. Who is going to question a rocket ship yeah. on the back lot of a, of a movie studio? Yeah, it's probably a new ride. Oh, my God. Fabulous. And then, I don't know how this happens... He gets a part on a sitcom on Universal Studios. Amazing. And we are now writing the second novel. I, the first one came onto the, um, the um, New York Times bestseller list yes. at number five. Yes. 
Very proud. It's just so good. I can't wait for you guys. It's to a great. Read this uh, book. It's a great uh, birthday gift. Yeah. Hanukkah gift. Christmas gift. It's so sweet. Yeah. I have one final question for yes. you, my friend. This podcast is called Work in Progress. Yes. And I'm curious when you hear that phrase, what comes to mind first as a work in progress in your life? To know yourself is to know the world because we are all the same. Mm. So I see myself as a chunk of Swiss cheese and I am now trying to fill all of those holes so that I am total cheese. Mm. I am trying to get, I am working in order to, the more I know about myself, mm. the more I know about every human being I come in contact with. I love that. Almost like the, the more real you can get with yourself, the deeper you can dive in yourself, the deeper you understand the world. The Yes. Because if you look at whether you understand the language or not, when you look at a tragedy and you see those human beings wherever they are in the world, that pain is exactly the same pain you understand from your own experience mm. or the authenticity of that could be my pain. Mm-hmm. We are all the same. Mm-hmm. And what we are doing, hating each other is, I don't quite get it because it's not as much fun. It's really not. Yeah. I'm, I'm here for the high fives on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, thanks for giving what me one. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so when much. When I heard <laughs> that this podcast was you, I, I could not say yes fast enough. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud 10 and Brilliant Anatomy. Powered by Simplecast. Simplecast.